diversify or die. Pretty bold statement. I don't mean die as in a person, I mean the industry's dying. <laughs> My dad borrowed a helicopter. Sorry, so you borrowed a helicopter? Borrowed a helicopter. Machine guns? No, he left that one at home. <laughs> So my grandfather was a rhubarb grower in the rhubarb triangle. Sorry, excuse my naivety. What is the rhubarb triangle? Is this like a masonry <laughs> Have you ever actually just given in? Someone said no 20 times and you thought, nope, that is enough. I'm, I'm actually going to listen to you. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. UK farming has been put on more people's radar than ever before, ever since Clarkson started driving around in tractors shouting at sheep. But farmer, mother of two turned produce exporter to Dubai, claims that in farming and business, individuals need to diversify or die. But why? From founding Annabelle's Deliciously British to diversifying into tame and wild drinks, Annabelle is not your average entrepreneur. I ask how she balances running a business and bringing up two children, why the UAE are so fond of her rhubarb, and should any Apprentice contestants be listening, just how hard is it to get the perfect alcohol-free flavour? Ladies and gentlemen, Annabelle Making-Jones. Thanks for having me. So the other week we had William Chase on the podcast, arguably one of the more successful farmers turned entrepreneurs out there. You've not done too badly yourself. Talk to me about how you got into it. I think I'm a long way behind Will, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but, but then I am a bit younger. I think we've we both come from the same industry and we've hopefully seen trends and jumped on those at the right time. His was obviously crisps with Tyrrells to start with. And mine has been more about brand building a brand within fresh produce initially and then kind of going down the route of the more sustainable, like how do we make how do we make a really sustainable brand within farming that people can really believe in and understand where the food comes from and know that when they buy that brand, they get what they actually think they're getting. It's not a ripoff and actually it's a jam that says England on it, but it's actually full of Chinese fruit. And I wanted to just bring some, uh, not naming any names, obviously, no, um, but I wanted to bring some, you know, kind of transparency to yes. to farming and food production. I mean, in terms of, and we'll get into the actual business because you've got two that kind of feed each other to a certain extent, but looking back at your childhood, growing up on the farm that you did, it's, you know, generations have owned that farm of your family members. You know, is that kind of, is that instilled that work ethic into your family? Do your brothers, do you have any brothers, sisters? No, I was supposed to be Charles. No. Um, you were supposed to be Charles? <laughs> yeah. And you went for Annabelle instead? Okay, yeah, yeah, there you go. They got me instead. Yes, it is definitely instilled into you. And, you know, you spend so much time. It's 
it's not work, is it? You're, I think when you grow up on a family farm and your parents are farmers, work isn't just work, it's your life. You know, you don't get to clock on and off and your weekends are not for yourself, whether your animals need feeding or, you know, it's it's time to go harvesting. You do what you have to do and that is just, I think it's the best upbringing you can have actually because yeah. you have responsibilities uh, whether you like it or not and it pushes you it pushes you in that direction of, well, we work every day and that's just life. So have you got a animal, arable farm? What, what type of farm have you got? Yeah, so um, initially when I was little, we were an arable farm with potatoes. Right. And then as things progressed with my father, it changed and he went into grading potatoes that were imported. And then I came along and grew that business with him. And then we started growing strawberries. And that was to fill a gap in the summer because we were busy in the winter and we had this kind of hole um, because we weren't grading potatoes. And so we decided to utilise the chill stores and the land that we had. And, and actually, we were looking for something where we would get much better return. And arable farming, as we all know, is, you know, on its knees. So we had to look for something else. And that's when the strawberry started. And when you say we, you know, that was your, obviously your dad and yourself. How heavily invested were you in the early days of your childhood in the farm? Were you out there helping your parents? Yeah, so when I say started the strawberries, that was 2004. So going back before that, when I was in my teens, I was always there, whether it was, you know, filling the little brown wage packets with my nana or or taking <laughs> the fish and chips up on my quad bike when they were combining or actually, you know, carting corn. I I loved it. And then, then I started to work in the office when I was 15. Um, and it kind of just went from there. And actually, I wasn't coming home after university. I was going off and doing something totally different. Uh, and it was only when I stepped back in for a few months and, and really threw myself in at the deep end that I felt that it was unfair to my family that I left, but also to the business because I had made so many drastic changes and very, very quickly. It sounds quite idyllic, that upbringing where you were on the back of the quad bike. I can picture <laughs> it. I can picture it. But you eventually went to Harper Adams to study agri-food marketing with business studies. That didn't set you up too badly for life. Well, ultimately, I knew that I'd have a good time uh, and Classic. be with like-minded people. <laughs> <laughs> Why not the Royal Ag? Why didn't you go there? Uh, oh, God, I've got to be careful here because uh, my husband went to Sirencester. Did he? <laughs> um, I guess I felt I was better placed at Harper. Um, a, they have an amazing sort of placement year, which really sets you up for real life within your university years. And actually, Harper Adams is perceived as being very, very good at getting people ready, to, ready for industry. And I felt that that was better for me. Now, that's very <laughs> diplomatic. Two fingers to the RAU then in that case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when, when graduating uni then, you know, what did you want to do? You went back to the farm, I'm assuming, and you kind of accidentally fell back into, into that world. Did you want to fly the nest and do something different? No, actually, I, w I went home because I was waiting for a property in Leeds. I, my dissertation was based on a premium uh, sandwich chain stroke delicatessen that would then turn into a homemade ready meal business at half past three in the afternoon. And it was to be based in Leeds for all the people that lived in apartments so that they could literally get a great lunch, a great dinner, stick it in the microwave if they wanted. They could even have a dinner party at home and they didn't have to make any of it. Lovely. And um, I got the funding from the bank and I found the property. And in that time, I went home to do some work because um, I couldn't have the premises until the November. Right. And I went home in the June because that's when I finished Harper Adams. And I just, I went in with a sledgehammer and um, <laughs> made some huge changes. And then it got to signing on the dotted line in the October. 
And I suppose there was an element of, I felt it was the wrong thing to do for my father and my family because I'd gone in and I had made so many changes and I knew what my capabilities were. I had seen that over those few months. But also I felt, and I think a lot of farming children feel this, I felt it was my responsibility. Therefore, you know, I should do the right thing. I'd been at a very good girls' school. I'd been to Harper Adams. I'd had a really good childhood. And I kind of owed that to my parents and my grandparents and the farm. And so I decided not to go anywhere. And actually, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's all right for you because, you know, your parents have the farm and you've got a family business. Those are the people that don't have a family business that say that because they have no understanding how difficult family businesses are. I bet there's a lot of politics involved. <laughs> Especially when you're all quite strong. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, very individually minded. But you've got kids now. Do you want them to take over, I suppose, the multiple businesses and the farm that you now have? I'd like them to have the option if they wanted to. I don't want it to be a given that they will. I'd like them to have their own ideas because I think that the other thing is with being in a family business it's quite easy to be in someone else's shadow and we all want our own time to shine. And so I would hope that, you know, whether it was taking it in a different direction or starting up something else that could be based there or, or, or it was part of it. Um, of course I would love that, but it's their choice. So are they boys, girls? I got one boy and one girl. Okay, so you've got a good split then. I bet you, you're able to kind of hope that the girl will do something that you're interested in and what the boy will go and work with the dad. Well, my husband now works with me. He came oh. in in the summer. Oh, you're, you're recruiting them all then. <laughs> this is this is tax efficiency. It's cheap labour. Yes, <laughs> it is. But in terms of bringing up two kids, running a farm, running two businesses, that's pretty labour intensive. You know, how have you, how have you done that? Well, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't really like to sit still. Um, I find achievement so exciting. It's definitely not about the money because there isn't a lot of that at the moment, but it's about, I suppose it's about um, creating something and that being, you know, these businesses are now my babies and, and, and watching them flourish just like a child really. And, you know, every, for every knockback you get, which, you know, it's like a somebody smacking you in the guts. It's the, the amazing things that come along and the things that you get asked to do and, and, also, with particularly with my Annabelle's brand, the good that I do for the Prince's Trust, I actually get a real kick out of lots of other things that are way beyond, you know, uh, a big turnover. How did you get involved then with, and we'll get on to Annabelle's shortly, but how did you get involved with the Prince's Trust? I mean, there's elements of synergy around the duchy, I suppose, in terms of what they do, Farm Shop Organic, you're in the similar world. What was the reason you got involved with, with the Prince's Trust? I went to a dinner. I was invited to a dinner and I heard someone speak who had been a beneficiary. And I actually found it really inspiring. So when I started Annabelle's, I knew that I wanted a brand that did more than just sell produce with my name on that was of a better quality, etc. I wanted something more than that. And so I inquired as to whether I could support them, even though I was only a very small business at the time. And they were they were great with me, actually. And I think what inspired me more than anything is I think we all have we all touch on politics here and there. And that charity inspires and supports people in to be able be able to support themselves, which in turn gives better mental health. Um, they feel that they've achieved something. And like I said, for me, achievement is everything. And so I just feel that being able to give people 
the skills to be able to provide for their own is far better than just handing over money. And I'm not talking about for medical things because I also give for Marie Curie. Um, but um, being able to give people skills rather than just give them money and then be on the streets all day and actually it makes no difference to their lives. That is properly interesting. But I mean, do you have to get to a point in your life though, Annabelle, whereby you can then give back or have you always been this philanthropic? Um, no, I don't know how you see it, but I think definitely as you get older, you're, you you obviously look at things in different ways, yes. but you, I want to feel good about what I do and the decisions that I make. And where you get big businesses that can give money, farming actually struggles with that because it doesn't earn that much money. But what we can do is take people and show them what we do. And if I can create a brand where I add in some margin for these charities, we can then take farming to them. These are the type of people that don't know what how to drive a tractor, that don't know how their food is grown. And, you know, the bigger picture for me is that, and I put a, I put a um, time limit of 10 years on, I want to create a charity that goes into inner city schools and teaches children where their food comes from because, you know, they did a survey in Leeds and 90% of the children in inner city schools in Leeds think that milk comes from a supermarket. <laughs> oh, really? So... Yeah, so that is mad. So we've lost, we, you know, people have lost touch with food, and I, you know, the, so there is a bigger picture for me, but it, it ultimately is, it is about the less fortunate and and how we can help them. I mean, and, and you did create a brand though. You have started a business, and you kind of in two thousand and four took over your parents' farm and started to diversify into strawberries, as you alluded to earlier. That was the start of really that journey for you, wasn't it? In terms of getting to this point where actually you may well be able to to start this charity. Talk to me about how you got into the world of strawberries. So, like I said, you know, we needed something in the summer to fill the gap where it was quieter for us because we weren't importing potatoes and grading them. And so we went into strawberries. We had the land. At the time, there wasn't that many people in it. We could see the gap in the market. There was a better return for us. And so we went down that route. And then from 2004 to 2018, we basically produced strawberries for retailers and then by the time I got to 2018, I thought, my God, can I actually do this forever? You know, we they just want us to produce strawberries, strawberries for as life. cheap and as fast as we possibly can. And, and wh what am I doing? Like, yeah. this is boring. This is, you know, I was 37. What, why, like, how do I want to, how, what do I, what else do I want to do? Like, surely this isn't me for the next 25 years. And so that was when Annabelle's Deliciously British came up because I said well you know actually I get lots of nice emails from people that when they see my name on the retailers pack they send me an email and say you know your strawberries are great oh. so I basically went to London with a really really nice Annabelle's biodegradable punnet in March of that year with no fruit in it and pitched to two of the best wholesalers in the country and how I did it I don't know <laughs> but they said yeah we're gonna go with you wow um and I got them and I also got uh, Boots retailers, there's 28 of those in the north of England, wow. and Ocado. Okay, and, big brands. Yeah, and, and, and it's worked and we do have a really nice following and then that has led to so many other things. So that's led to, so we're all about sustainability, but that then led to using the fruit to create jams and chutneys, me engaging with other farmers and growing rhubarb together, daffodils. Um, and then came Tame and Wild, uh, which is my drinks company, which is basically using the best of British 
fruit, turning it into extracts and creating a drink which is low in calories, low in sugar, even the sugar is from English sugar beet, and giving people something to drink when they're not drinking. So the other thing I wanted to do was talk about mindfulness and health and, you know, how we all live a better life and that and tame and wild offers that and in terms of and we'll get on to the tame and wild story shortly and, and there's some anecdotes around the apprentice and them creating alcohol-free drinks <laughs> i don't know if you watched that last week but they really cut that yeah, one up. It did. Um, <laughs> but in terms of how you open those doors with ocado how did you how did you do that because you made it sound incredibly easy you just turned up at their door or did you have an in already no I went to somebody and said, do you have a contact? No, I don't. But I know somebody that might have a contact. And this went on through about five people. And then I eventually got an email for an own brand lady that worked for Ocado. It wasn't even in my area. And would you believe it? And a lot of people listening to this will go, God, you were lucky. She replied and she gave me the buyer's details, which A, they don't usually reply. And B, they definitely don't give you the details. So I was like, wow, oh my God, how has that happened? And then she gave me the details of the strawberry buyer and I then went to him. And I think it was really interesting at the time for Ricardo because they had Waitrose and they didn't have their own brand. So they just really had Waitrose and there was no branded produce out there. Uh, uh, Sorry, other than Berry World. So, So they were really keen for this kind of niche farm shop product to go on to Ocado, and it worked really well. You named it after yourself, which, you know, some say is ballsy because your face literally is the brand. If it goes wrong, then then, then that's kind of fairly obvious that it's you that went wrong there. But arguably, does that give you a bit of a kind of edge against the brands that may feel more corporate, may feel bigger, I suppose, because you have that element of personality? I think people want to know where the food comes from now, and I think people like to know the story behind it, especially foodies. The provenance, and yeah. And the majority of my product does go to foodies and, you know, the best chefs and restaurants in London well, and around the country, actually, and to Japan and to Hong Kong and to Dubai. But um, <laughs> World domination. It, 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 it's worked. It's, uh, it, the, the people like it. And I suppose naming it after me allows them to... I share quite a lot of farming life and what we do as a family on the farm via Instagram. And we get really nice feedback from that because people feel like they know where it's coming from. And actually, although it's been delivered in a plastic bag, they know it's come from that farm. In terms of it coming from that farm, though, obviously, you've spoken about that influence, that kind of social side of the marketing. Do you think you could have done it without that? Because your stories are very organic and very raw. Gosh, that's a good question, isn't it? Not as quick. Not as quick. Because you've scaled pretty quickly. Because customers share stuff as well, don't they? And then that it's that active following yeah. them from their customers and then somebody talks about it. And um, it's amazing how that spreads so quickly. Uh, probably, no, I no. Without it, no, it wouldn't have spread as quick. Because it's only been <laughs> spread as quick when you're making jams, <laughs> but it's only been sort of 12 months or so, hasn't it, since, since you launched it, before you had what I can class as a pretty big issue, to use a technical term. You had a load of farming equipment stolen in 2020. That's pretty critical when you are running a farm to run your business, right? Yeah. How did you get past that? Was it just insurance or was there a big kind of spanner in the works? Um, My dad borrowed a helicopter. Sorry, you borrowed a helicopter? Borrowed a helicopter. How did you do that? From a friend and flew over the area uh, within about a seven mile radius. And found yeah. machine guns. <laughs> no, he left that one at home. Oh, he left um, that at home, right? <laughs> uh, but 
found three of the biggest items, which were two Kubotas and a quad dumped. So they were back within a few days. Um, and then the other stuff was all things like strimmers and chainsaws and all that kind of thing. Those we claimed on the insurance, but you know, the insurance were great. So, you know, we were back to normal fairly quickly yeah. and it was in the winter. Oh, fine. So it wasn't that integral. Still a big issue, you know, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of finding them via the air, would there have been another way of claiming that back or would it have elongated the pain and elongated the process and you might have had a bit more of an issue on your hands? Well, we could have claimed it our insurance, but then your claim goes up and then, you know, like they're coming round and saying, well, what's this locked and is this done? And, you know, and then they're just into everything, which is just annoying. <laughs> So you've got to be at a helicopter to get past that. In terms of in terms of your famous statement we found online, you say diversify or die. Pretty bold statement. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I think I don't mean die as in a person. I mean the industry's dying. And if you don't if you don't diversify and look for something else, you'll die of boredom because you'll just get hammered over the head by the retailer so much that in the end you'll either sell up. Hopefully you'll sell up and get planning permission on your land. But if you don't, then you'll uh, sell up and sell your farm and somebody bigger will come in and just continue to do what the industry's doing. And that's just shoveling as much out as quick as possible. So if you don't look for something else and hey, I'm not saying I've got the answer because, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing my best. But uh, but we're looking for you for the answer. I was really <laughs> hoping you did. Just have a go. Have a go at something else. Don't let the boredom kill you. But you've diversified. You've gone from potatoes to strawberries to daffodils to gin. And one of your biggest exporters is 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 Dubai. You sell them a lot of rhubarb. Why and how did you get into that? So my grandfather was a rhubarb grower in the rhubarb triangle. Sorry, excuse my naivety. What is the rhubarb triangle? Is this like a masonry thing? The rhubarb triangle is at Wakefield in Yorkshire and has the same recognition as uh, Parma ham and feta cheese, you know, the regional, okay. uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the regional like accreditations uh, mark. Yeah. 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 Okay. And um, so is really sought after in London, especially with the chefs. Yeah. And I knew a grower that was go was giving up last year and I, my grandfather had done it and I was looking for, I'm, I basically wanted Annabelle's to be an all year round business. And that's very difficult when you're a strawberry farmer. Um, and so <laughs> I went looking for something else and I thought, well, what's, what can I do with the farms that we have, with the roots that I have? That's also a premium product that sits well with everything else that I've done. So rhubarb came up and I have an amazing relationship with a retailer called Spinney's in Dubai who stock my jams and hopefully the drinks soon and strawberries and they see rhubarb as an exotic. So yeah. I now ship rhubarb from Wakefield to like Dubai. Like we see pineapples, yeah. you do it from the, the rhubarb triangle, not to be confused with the Bermuda triangle. I like that. Didn't know that. There's definitely no chance of them growing rhubarb in, uh, in Dubai. I'm going out to Dubai in two months' time, so I can report back, but you're probably right. Um, <laughs> in terms of farm shops, they're quite cool at the moment. Farm shops have kind of been on the rise over the last couple of years. Have you seen a massive uplift in organic sales simply because people are more educated on actually healthy eating and where food comes from? I know you said you wanted to start a charity, but farm shops have had a massive impact, surely. Yeah, I think, and especially with COVID, I think they did. I think people were became so much more interested in food. They also needed somewhere to go. And let's face it, you know, 
your local supermarket isn't exactly, you know, a, a nice ride out. So I think people <laughs> switched and did like the bulk shop at the retailer and then would go to the farm shop and almost treat themselves and look for something different and look for recipes. And then obviously due to social media, what was being shared, you know, by chefs and the box schemes, it kind of inspired people to get more involved with food. And I think that has definitely helped the farm shops, which I think is amazing. In terms of partnerships then, because I'm assuming you have to partner with certain farms in your area to be able to get the quantity of product that you need to be able to distribute, or do you do it all yourself? No, so um, my daffodils are from Cornwall, actually. Are they? Because uh, that's the best growing area for flowers. And we started in Cornwall because that was already going, but we are looking to grow flowers in Yorkshire. It's just not that easy, like daffodil bulbs to get hold of them. You may all think when you listen to this, that's rubbish, but actually it's not. Daffodil bulbs are extremely expensive and in high demand. So it's not just as easy as finding the bulbs and planting them. So there are lots of things in the pipeline for us, all sorts of exciting things. But obviously, you know, with anything, it, it just takes a bit of time. And in terms of in terms of kind of diversifying and looking at other areas, what else are you going to be going into? Because you, you kind of you, you're kind of spreading yourself quite broadly at the moment. Are you going to go into into other things? Crisps, maybe. <laughs> I know. I'll leave that to Will. I think. Okay, um, okay. At this moment, I launched an awful lot of products last year, and I think this this year is about making sure that I get my listings and where are they going and where do I want to be? So for instance, we're just doing a big run at the moment of miniature strawberry jam jars. Can't go into detail, but it's looking like it's going to go to uh, a very high end airline, afternoon teas, things like that. So I am basically taking my products now and going within what I've got, where else can I go and what am I going to do? Um, we, got notification that we've got 21 stores in Manhattan in New York for wow. strawberries this summer so that it's about taking the rest of my stuff and building those relationships to take all of my products so we can create this story in store where people understand that everything has come from me and and even if you know the daffodils are not from my farm they know that they've been sourced really well that they are English British and that they're buying whatever they're mine they're buying British all year round and, and, and like the jams and the chutneys, you know, 99% of what you buy in the supermarket has Chinese or Polish fruit in it. We don't, we don't, you know, we're not allowed to advertise the fact that people are not using English or British fruit. Actually, if you look on the back when it says strawberries, the reason they're not telling you is because they don't have to. Right. Okay. Do you think that should be put into law, put into legislation that you have to declare where the product has come from surely that's around the corner i think so because i i think people have a perception of oh you know you sell your strawberries to the retailers but what do you do with that eight ten percent waste that doesn't make the specification you know people see my jam and think, oh gosh it's more expensive than x from down the road of course it's more expensive we've got a much higher minimum wage you've got to take the calyx out which is the green bit at the top and um <laughs> Therefore, it's going to be more expensive. But if you want to buy British and you want to support the farmers and the countryside here, then you've got to put your money where your mouth is. A hundred percent. And in terms of looking at how you get into bed with these luxury airliners or these individuals in Manhattan, what is your strategy for that? Because you do seem incredibly lucky. You accidentally turned up in London, you're in Ocado, you're in Manhattan, you're on some planes. I'm assuming it's British Airways. 
Is it British Airways? It would be a great synergy. I actually can't say who it is. I've actually, I've had to sign an NDA. So I don't know. Some might say it's tenacity. I don't give in on anything. If I want something, I really wanted to buy and they were really, really anti having me. And I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And now, I mean, I was there a couple of weeks ago and I was having dinner with the buyer and now the relationship is amazing. I think it's just never giving in. And actually, when somebody says no to you, instead of that, at first you go, oh, that hurts. But it's then saying, well, I'm going to show them and they are going to have it and just never giving in and making sure that, you know, whatever way, like even if I have to come back and redirect and go around another way, 90% of the time I find a way. Have you ever actually just given in? Someone said no 20 times and you thought, nope, that is enough. I'm, I'm actually going to listen to you. No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like red rag to a bull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what point do you stop though? Well, you have to stop at some point. You can't be persisting through these individuals when they don't actually want your product. How do you know when to stop? No, but what's funny is it's, it's mainly the big retailers. You know, for right. instance... Oh, hi, can, will you stock my jam? Managed to find the buyer who's actually replied that buys the conserves. Oh, yeah, we're not reviewing this until Q3 and my mother just died and then the dog ate my daughter's homework and you get every excuse. Good excuses, in the book. But <laughs> well, they, they, are. Are good uh, they then change. They swap buyers around. So then you can go again on the next one. And so you get then eventually the answer that you want. Well... You would hope so. <laughs> so what you did after you decided to export rhubarb to Dubai was that you started a business called Tamer World, which basically produces excellent high-end alcohol-free drinks. I know because I've had some. When and how did you get into the world of liquid? So this, this was born totally out of going for dinner with some mums at school. My children had just started school and we went for we went for dinner and I had a gin and tonic and then I thought, oh God, actually it's half an hour home. What am I gonna have? And I don't want to drink Coke and lemonade full of sugar with a nice meal. Don't want to drink it at the best of times, but definitely not with a nice meal. <laughs> and there was nothing. You know, you can have carbonated water with some lime juice and don't really want that either, to be honest. <laughs> um, and so I went away and I thought, well, you know, what could I do? And I'm all about being British all about what we can grow here and the very much the best of British. But also I had had in my mid-30s a really, really bad time with my stomach and we couldn't find anything wrong with me and I was sure I was going to die. And uh, we just, there was just, no, everybody said, there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you, you've got IBS. And I was like, I haven't. And ended up going and having some help from a lady in London who is an alternative therapist. Oh, what type does she practice? Uh, she is... Reiki, homeopathy. Oh, God. No, no, no. It's... Um, does she stab people? It's a... No, yeah. well, she just kind of stab you. Kind of does. It's a probe on the end of your finger and it and it measures your meridians. It's... Uh, wow. I can't... Don't ask no, me that I've question. I literally no idea. Um, and she helped me so much, but the medicine that she gave me was all made from herbs. And within 12 months she'd fix me and that made a massive difference to my life because it was just constant I was in pain constantly and I just couldn't get rid of it and and I thought well hang on you know I'm wanting to make these amazing drinks that are for when you're not drinking or to be used as a really nice mixer as it turns out 
Um, and <laughs> for when you are drinking. Yeah, yes. for when you are. <laughs> and so I, I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to look for things that are natural, that are good for... What are we seeing that are problems now in the world? Mental health, anxiety. And so I chose things, for instance, in the strawberry, there's lime flower. Lime flower is really good for anxiety. Dandelion with the blueberry is good for, is a natural diuretic. So don't get me wrong, I'm not going to change your life. Uh, and I'm not allowed to make those claims on the bottle. But people are becoming more and more aware of mm. alternative health and what yeah. herbal extracts can do for you. And the blueberry is amazing when you've got a hangover because it's got dandelion in and it gets rid of it. So I, I hear ginger's quite good as well. Yeah, it is. It's, have you got a ginger drink? No, that, because I can't find, I can't grow ginger in the UK. Oh, that is a small barrier, actually, in, in, in honesty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I would like to have a go at doing it, but um, at the moment I've just got enough on. But the, <laughs> I'm looking at lots of alternative things to grow. I saw somebody growing watermelons the other day in polytunnels. I got all excited about wow. watermelons and a watermelon UK watermelon drink, but I'm not quite ready for that yet. And do you, you must partner with individuals to be able to support apply the produce to put into the drinks right you don't i know you do with other yeah products, yeah i don't grow all that though no. fine okay but how and how do you come up with the flavors though because i was only watching the apprentice the other day and uh it'll be two weeks ago when this airs that they decided to challenge themselves to create alcohol-free beverages that was a disaster they were all rubbish from what i could see but yours yours are nice <laughs> thank you um yeah i mean i don't think they ha- I, I had some help i'll be honest i went to a and this is another thing. This is this is all about sometimes it's who you know and the help that you get. So a very good friend of mine put me in touch with a guy that owned quite a few breweries in the north of England. And I went to him and he told me then who to go to to help me to make the drinks. And then the people that made the drinks then helped me. Then they had a small factory to start and make my first batch. And then I wanted to bring it home to Yorkshire because I always wanted it to be made at Yorkshire. But there wasn't a factory that would make a real small run for me. So then I had to up my volume and bring it home to Yorkshire and have it made here for it to all stay within Yorkshire. That must have been quite expensive to to specifically do a small run in Yorkshire and only make it in Yorkshire. Yeah, so that's why I had to put the run number up. I mean, it is expensive. It's not a cheap product because there's just absolutely no nasties or anything artificial in it whatsoever. Again, this was created for foodies, people that care about what they eat and drink. Um, and I think you can tell that when you taste it. But in terms of funding it yourself, it's it's not a cheap thing to do in terms of actually getting the capital together to be able to essentially launch a completely separate business when you've already got one on the side that you're trying to grow. Where did you get the money from? So my parents were very kind and lent me some. Obviously, I have Annabelle's, which is mine, and I'm not a big fan of owing money, so I've paid my parents back and now Annabelle's helps to fund Tame and Wild. I mean, Tame and Wild has only started six months before the first lockdown happened. So it's had a really treacherous time to get it in people's hands is so difficult. Yeah. And, you know, why why would people switch from one thing to another? And, you know, unless you're in that car driving around every pub, which is virtually impossible when you're running three other businesses, actually incredibly hard to do. Um, and you need people to understand what it is as well. And again, that's really hard getting that out there and people understanding what the product is. And in terms of how you go about marketing it, because you kind of you're pretty much self-taught in all of this, both kind of from starting a business through to scaling through to diversifying through to launching more. You know, how do you know what the right thing to do is? Because Tame and Wild seems to be going quite well as far as 
I can see. You can tell me differently. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, probably not at the rate that I would have wanted, but then I do run at everything. So um, <laughs> that's probably probably unrealistic, the goals that I set myself. I mean, we're doing well. We're in Dalesford. We're in Fort Mason. Yeah, yeah. Um, potentially going to Dubai. Uh, it's in Booth's supermarkets and we've got quite a big deal with a retailer uh come this summer so See, it is quite well it is <laughs> yeah it is good it is it, it's doing better than it was yeah. definitely i think it's just hard isn't it because you know like i said these things are your babies and when you get a lot of knockbacks it, it kind of everyone seems hard and you always remember you always remember the knockbacks and you come to take the really good things for granted a hundred percent and looking back at when you started tame and wild how did you get it off the ground? Because if there was a pandemic and you couldn't get it into people's hands, how did you get it out there? It can't have solely been through social media. What was it? I gave it away. I gave I literally like literally like events, um, which I'm still doing now. Um, I posted it. I I visited people. I am lucky in the sense that I do know quite a few famous chefs who have helped me by listing it. And then it has quite a high profile. And the customers that I have, like Fortnum and Mason, Dalesford, they want that more premium thing. And then that has given me that kind of stepping stone because they're premium. People go, oh, well, what's that? Oh, it's in there. That definitely helps because that kudos behind it, you know, when you say to somebody, oh, well, I already supplied Fortnum and Mason. Yeah, yeah. They think, oh, hang on, that's good. But sometimes you just have to wing it and pretend that you're somewhere for somebody to take notice and then get it listed in there and then you can use it off the back of the fact that it's in there. I mean, <laughs> Where have you pretended to be listed? Harrods? You do, you, you have, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, no, I, I do supply Harrods with fruit, but uh, not the drinks. You just have to be a bit imaginary, yeah. I think, in the start off and... and, and you know, maybe stretch the tree slightly, but then once you've got your foot in the door, then you're, you're away. But, you know, so what these buyers forget is, is that they're sat in their nice, comfortable seat at their desk going yes or no. And uh, I don't have a lot of understanding about what's gone in behind that poor person that's emailing them every week, driving them insane. A hundred percent. And in terms of telling that story, though, just run me through how you would pitch to a buyer because that's often where people fall down even if the door is open and they've got the bar in front of them sometimes they just don't get it right how do you pitch to the buyer i think it depends on the buyer that you get if you get someone who's really interested for my products particularly if you get someone that's really interested in the product likes the product and understands the background behind it then they will buy into it and ultimately they're buying into the story behind it and they it's an easy win when they do that because you know you've already got them on the hook. Basically, the only issue you've got is the price. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you get somebody who's a buyer that isn't interested in the products, all they're interested in is in the margins and the numbers. Actually, they're the ones that I can't really be bothered with because <laughs> I think if you don't understand my products, then you're never going to get it and you're not going to understand why they're a bit more money or why they're premium so let's not waste each other's time because if it's all about the numbers, I'm not going to win the numbers game. No, 100%. I mean, do you ever come back down to a level that is actually cheaper than where you went in at? Or do you hold your own and say it's X, that is what it is for these reasons? No, obviously, as I grow and get more customers and do bigger production runs, I can then drop the price. But we also all have to be very aware in the industry that I'm in that every time minimum wage goes up, 65% of my costs are labour. 
So I actually can't get rid of that unless I put a machine in. And we all know that robots that pick strawberries are extremely slow. So I'm not in the position to be able to go and do that. So again, the people that actually understand the industry and the products know that. And that's the hardest thing because the retailers have removed all of the knowledge, all of the information, all of the seasons behind pretty much every product in the supermarket. And therefore, nobody knows what grows at what time of year. I said to somebody the other day, I said, oh, yeah, the daffodils start this week. <gasps> daffodils in January. Like, we should be shouting about the yeah. fact that we're the biggest daffodil grow. You, the UK is the biggest daffodil growing country in the world. Is it really? Like, how many people know that? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 there you go, case in point. I had literally no <laughs> idea. Ask me about tulips. I can tell you where. Daffodils are not your man. Uh, <laughs> In terms then of, of issues and barriers and mistakes then, because it doesn't sound like apart from the fact that some quad bikes were stolen and a few strimmers, you've had many issues. You seem to have done quite well. Or maybe I'm just good at hiding it, you don't know. Sales, that is exactly um, what it is. Fails. I think there's fails every day. Um, <laughs> don't put yourself down, you were so positive earlier. <laughs> uh, I, every, you know, I, I think the world that we're in, uh, and particularly farming, you just become a firefighter most of the time. Like there's always a problem and it's how you get around those problems. I'm not a particularly glass half empty kind of girl. So if something goes wrong, I try in my own mind to manipulate it to be a positive. And I seem to be able to do that 85% of the time with myself, which I think does keep me positive and does just keep me going. I have a great team of people that work for me. I feel very, very lucky. So how many have you got working for you now then? So office 15. Okay. Um, key staff outside, uh, about 25. And then in the summer, we have 300. Blimey. Okay, so ebbs and flows. Yeah, so they all live on site as well when they come in the summer and uh, in caravans. But again, they're 85% returnees. So I'm quite, pr to be honest with you, one of the proudest things is that because we must be doing something right as a business for the amount of people to want to return, be based with us, obviously earning a fair living, taking it home and then coming back again. And you know, without them, we wouldn't have a business. So that is so important to us. Do you think the world's becoming more aware then of alcohol-free drinks? Because, you know, people are looking after their health, as you've rightly alluded to with regards to where the food comes from, but where the drink comes from. Do you think that's changing as well? I think from a health perspective as a whole, I think definitely whether that's fermented products, whether that's cooking from scratch or whether that's supplements, whether that's iron or, you know, blue-green algae, whatever you want it to be, I think everybody or the majority are more aware more fitness um and i think everybody thinks come january oh we're going to have a good go at that and then by february 95 percent have wavered but i think it's not about the massive changes i think it's about introducing small changes so for me i have had a good time and uh i've always enjoyed alcohol but I definitely don't drink as much as I used to do. And, and maybe that's age. I don't know. I turn 40 next week. So, You're joking. Or, it's <laughs> or because maybe I'm a bit more mindful. I think I, think I am more mindful. Unless I'm drinking alcohol, then I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite well. I eat well. And help, uh, in terms of Tame and Wild, it's nice to come home after work and enjoy having a nice drink of something in a beautiful glass, over ice, with a garnish, 
but I haven't just drunk 200 calories in a glass of wine. No, 100%. And you don't have to wake up with a hangover, which is also the perk. (laughs) And we we, we can't speak about uh, farming, exporting and the like without mentioning the, uh, the word Brexit. How's that affected your business? Well, not affected Tame and Wild. It's affected us from a growing perspective. So a lot of things are brought in from the continent. So things like koya, which is what we grow the strawberries in, which is uh, almost like a peat soil with a coconut coconut matting in it, so it gives better root structure for the plants. That We have to import that. We import some of our plants from Holland. They're the best plant propagators in the world. But in terms of export, not so much, because I export to Dubai, US, Japan and Hong Kong. So when Brexit hasn't affected that. And in terms then of where you want Tame and World to go versus Annabelle's, which do you feel is going to be the biggest brand? Or are you wanting them to be an equal partner? Place your bets. Annabelle's is like the older sister that kind of does all right in whatever it does. Tame and Wild is the one that, you know, is the clumsy one. Okay, interesting. And needs a bit more propping up and maybe a bit more of a an arm round it. So... I don't know, I guess Tame and Wild in a way, because it's the underdog. Okay, that's that's like me and my sister, to be fair. I'm just better than her and she needs propping up. In terms <laughs> then of, <laughs> in, in terms of entrepreneurial advice for those that are listening, you know, what have you got to give to people? Believe in yourself. Like we I'm sure the people that are listening to this are like me and listen to quite a lot of podcasts and I take a lot of inspiration from, you know, people like Will Chase or you know, Bamford's or Dyson yeah, yeah, yeah. or, you know. Those, those were the ones that he mentioned. Is there anyone else that you don't inspire to be like, like he does? He said you, by the way. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. I'll enjoy telling him that, though. <laughs> uh, who else am I inspired by? Well, Will is, Will is a massive one for me because he he literally was a farmer. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think the point I'm trying to make is is that Actually, if you've got a good attitude and you are ambitious, have a go. Like, who who determines who's going to make it and who isn't? If the trend is there and the timing is right and you have good people to support you as well and you're savvy enough to to be able to crack on and, 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 and not let things get you down. Crikey, you're only here once. Have a go at it. You know, love what you do and strive for more and you know, respect and understand your product and why you're doing it. And I think when, whether it's on a podcast or a meeting, that shines through in you. And actually people then believe in you and you're a huge part of what you're doing, whether it's a product or a service. If you are that product and service, then people buy into you. Nobody is more part of what they're doing though, Annabelle, than you, because your name is literally on the jar. And if I wanted to buy a jar... Uh, see what I did there? Where do I go to get Annabelle's or to get Tame and Wild? Hit me. So you can go on our website, annabellesdeliciouslybritish.co.uk, and you can buy all of our products, Tame and Wild and Annabelle's products. Booths, supermarkets, stock, everything that I have, whether that's daffodils, jam, chutney, or, or uh, strawberries. Uh, you can go to Dubai, yes. obviously. <laughs> Quite an expensive plane ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drinks-wise, Fortnum and Mason, Dalesford, and lots of pubs and restaurants but in terms of retail that's where we're at at the moment that that's a bit of a sticking point for me and annabelle's whole foods 
Literally everywhere, and your websites. You just can't go to the bog standard retailer and buy any of my stuff, basically. There you go. But I'm going to Dubai, so I shall pick some up. Annabelle, thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Good luck and speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Coming up next week on Successes in the Mind, we've got Rory Sweet back on the show. He was initially with us in Series 2, Episode 11, talking to us about how he got into business. He's now got out of business for some $715 million. He's going to tell us how. Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. See you next week, 8am on all podcast platforms. Simply subscribe or ask your smart speaker to play Success is in the Mind podcast. This is a Pinpoint Media podcast presented by me, Oliver Bruce, produced by Dan Miller and Fergus Bruce, edited and designed by Harry Fox and Victoria Bramwell, filmed by Madeline Harris, marketed by Ellie Hanwell and Rachel Buchanan-Hughes and managed by Bethan Wyatt and Annabelle Norton-Smith. Quite a team. Thanks, guys. If you know anyone you think we should interview, if you want to tell your story or have your say, please reach out to me directly via podcast at pinpoint-media.co.uk. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Cheers, guys.